0: Sound Opinions is supported by Goose Island, pairing beer and music since 1988. Goose Island Beer Company, Chicago, Illinois. Listen critically, enjoy responsibly.
1: I've noticed a number of peculiar incidents among the members of the student body, all having to do with rock and roll music. Uh, Wham-Bam Benjamin!
2: Now, if you don't think this
3: song is the greatest song ever, I will fight you. Many say that the Uncle Tupelo album No Depression gave birth to the alt country movement of the 90s, as well, of course, as inspiring bands that came after, like Sunvolt, the Drive By Truckers, and Wilco. I'm Jim DeRogatis. and I'm Greg Cott. We talk about this
4: landmark release with Uncle Tupelo drummer Mike Hydorn, and we'll review the latest from one of the
3: biggest rock bands in the country, the Black Keys. That's all coming up on Sound Opinions. This is Sound Opinions, and today Greg and I are going to dive deep into a classic album that's been high on our list for some time, No Depression by Uncle Tupelo. A lot of people, Greg, say it started the whole alt country ball rolling. You literally wrote the book on Wilco and have uh, quite a lot of discussion in that tome about No Depression.
4: Yes, Jim, that discussion is going to be coming up, but first we've got some music news.
3: Greg, I can see you inspired over there, lifting out of your seat to the strains of that power ballad, Rise Like a Phoenix. It comes to us from an artist named Conchita Wurst. He or she has won this year's Eurovision Song Contest. We were talking about the peculiar institution of Eurovision on our ABBA show recently, and we promised to report this year's winner. The winner is this Austrian artist, a 25-year-old, who calls himself the Bearded lady. Thomas Newworth is his name. His onstage drag persona is Conchita Worst. and he says that this is about positivity. For me, my dream came true, he said, of winning, but for society, it showed me that people want to move on, to look to the future. We said something, we made a statement. The political tea leaf readers of Eurovision are saying that this is in part a reaction to Russia's recent harsh stance against LBGT people in its own country. There's always politics in Eurovision, always has been since the days when it was started just after World War II. We were talking to John Kennedy O'Connor in our chat about Eurovision, the expert there, and he said, yeah, the nationalistic stuff always gets in. This year, people booed the Russian artists when they came on stage because people are protesting Russia's incursion into the Crimea. It was neck and neck for a while between Russia and Ukraine, but they wound up finishing at sixth and seventh. 180 million people watched Conchito the worst, pour her soul into Rise Like a Phoenix as she says, Wish for the moon, and you'll reach at least the stars.
4: That is Kenny G, one of Jim DeRogatis' favorite artists. I know, Jim, that you've got the widest collection of Kenny G bootlegs of anyone I know in the Midwest.
3: And a big poster over my desk. And you're
4: going to love this story. The New York Times was talking about the love affair that Beijing, China has with Kenny G's music. That song in particular. It's called Going Home. Uh, 1989 hit for the jazz light giant and for decades that song has been played at Beijing offices malls shops gyms wedding banquets school libraries to indicate it's almost closing time start packing up and leave in in a matter of minutes that's kind of like the the warning bell that everything is shutting down. They talked to a number of residents who had a similar reaction. One, Emma Zhang, said she first encountered going home in a cafe many years ago, and then she's heard it at home, at school, bookstores, shopping malls, health spas, and on the street— I used to think the tune was really nice and catchy, she said, but now I'm sick of it. The point being, though, that it has succeeded on a level of social engineering. It has programmed the residents of Beijing so that they know whenever they hear the song, they say they start to work or walk faster, realizing they have limited time to finish up whatever it is they're doing. So, it's kind of Pavlovian. It really is weird, isn't it? Like an Orwellian kind of scenario here. A lot of the residents say they have no idea what the song is or who recorded it, but it's so familiar in Beijing that everyone knows what it means. Now, Kenny G, got to give him some credit here for having a great sense of humor about this. He's not collecting any royalties on this song because China has a really basically non-existent royalty collection process, but he has been able to tour China. He says, I always save that song for last at my concerts because I don't want everyone going home early.
3: <laughs> <laughs>
2: Hometown, same town Thinking of you,
4: you give? To me. You're listening to Sound Opinions, and that's the song "Graveyard Shift," the lead-off track from Uncle Tupelo's pioneering alternative country album, No Depression. Now, alternative country's roots uh, go back to the '60s. You know, when rock musicians like Graham Parsons, The Birds, The Flatlanders out of Texas, they began dabbling with and reinvigorating country music. It was part of this wider investigation of American roots music and rock, a move toward so-called more authentic styles. The rockers were kind of looking at country greats like uh, Hank Williams, the Carter family, contemporaries like Johnny Cash and Merle Haggard for inspiration. Bob Dylan, you'll recall, famously collaborated with Cash on Girl from the North Country. And uh, then in the 70s and early 80s, a new generation of punk rockers started digging in to traditional country for inspiration. I'm talking about bands like X, the Mekons, Rank and File, Jason and the Scorchers, the Long Riders. And then the third wave of alt-country hit in the late 80s and early 90s. And there were really two bands behind that scene. The Jayhawks out of Minneapolis and Uncle Tupelo, the trio of Jay Farrar, Jeff Tweedy, and Mike Heidorn out of Little Belleville, Illinois just outside of St. Louis. Uncle Tupelo's debut album, No Depression, took its name from a Carter family song, No Depression in Heaven, and it's one of the many key albums defining the alt-country movement of this era. I think you can point back to Uncle Tupelo for groups like uh, Farrar's Sunvolt, Tweety's Wilco, Ryan Adams' Whiskey Town, the Drive-By Truckers, the old 97s, many of the bands that defined
3: that movement. Not to mention No Depression magazine, Greg. Legacy Recordings recently reissued No Depression, complete with some never-before-released demos from that period in 1987 to 1989. And to talk about it, we're joined by Uncle Tupelo's founding drummer, Mike Heidorn. Mike, welcome to Sound Opinions. Hello, boys. Thanks a lot for having me. So Heidorn, Farrar, Tweedy, people know these names if they know about indie rock. Out of Belleville, Illinois, a small blue-collar town. Tell us about Belleville in the 80s, Mike.
5: Ah, okay, that's my formative years, 70s and 80s. A small community with the world's longest Main Street, I think it was in the Guinness for a bit, and there was a lot of bars every other block I think we had per capita. There probably wasn't too much music coming out of Belleville directly before us, um, but there was lots of music and bands. But shoot, we had Jed Clampett, Buddy Epson, <laughs> actually did time in Belleville back in the day. And uh, so there's a good starting point, Jed.
4: <laughs> um, <laughs> you were in a really good garage band, the Primitives, prior to uh, Uncle Tupelo. Talk about that band, and uh, it was basically with this group of guys, right?
5: Yeah, uh, I had the good fortune of meeting the Ferrar family through my sister Kelly, who uh, ended up marrying Jay's Farrar's older brother, Dade. So I met Dade Farrar first, and I was enamored by his... Uh, His style, because he was in a band with his brother Jay and Wade and uh, various other drummers, so that really struck me. I had already been a music lover just from uh, listening to music in my household. uh, Not played on instruments, but played on the console stereo in the living room. So music was just everywhere in the house, and to have this guy come over that uh, actually played in a band, that really caught my attention. I went to go see them as an eighth grader or freshman when they were the plebes, and jay was on stage as a 14 year old playing a junior high dance with wade his older brother and dade and i was able to learn my instrument on the fly and what a great band to do it with because they were playing such great songs the sonics van morrison's them songs the remains the standells was a good band to try to play chocolate watch band and a lot of the stones and um uh, Ramon's stuff, so I, I I had a good fortune of meeting them at a young age and try to learn my instrument around them.
3: You know, Mike, it, it makes sense to me uh, when I read Greg's book and when I've, I've, I've read more about the history of Tupelo and what would become Sunvolt and, and Wilco. It makes sense for me that you guys were drawn to punk rock and garage rock. And I know also there were bands like the Minutemen that were big for you guys and the Stooges. And, you know, mm-hmm. because you're in Belleville and you just want to kick something, okay? And that's the sound of mm-hmm. kicking something. But in all those bars, right? Country music meant something different than the kind of country music you would begin to explore with Uncle tupelo so when did the country music begin to cross your radar and when did you guys i mean it was clear from the beginning with tupelo you had such a deep knowledge of the real country and not the jukebox cheesy trucker bar country
2: john hardy he was a desperate little man carried two guns every day he shot a man down on the west virginia line they saw john hardy getting away they saw John Hardy getting away. They cornered John Hardy on the Tombstone Bridge. We thought that he was free. Till a deputy sheriff came and grabbed him by the arm. Said, Johnny, come along with me. Johnny, come along with me.
5: The country influence, from my standpoint, um, there was no country music in my house. When I was saying my house is filled with music, None of it was from the country station uh, side of Elvis Presley or a Johnny Cash hit. So I couldn't speak to the country roots of Uncle Tupelo that well, except for that Jay's upbringing lent him to um, Ozark Mountain music by way of his parents, who were born in that area in rural Missouri. And I went there the first time to their house on Town Hall Road in Belleville and saw these instruments in their house, compared to my house, just had an upright piano. They had uh, fiddles, uh, mandolins, banjos, banjolins, acoustic guitars everywhere, and uh, uh, harmonicas and stuff. So Jay, I think, was definitely, without a doubt, the connection for me and the band to the, uh, to the soul of the folk country roots. And then you're right. We, there was that, that country sound on the radio. That, that's probably why we didn't listen to it. But this seemed different just with the style the the style of the fiddle or or what have you,
4: well, just as there were you know no real role models in Belleville from a standpoint of you know let 's go out and make this rock band thing a career it didn 't mm-hmm. seem yeah. like at the time of floating in the in the environment then too, in terms of just melding the country with the rock, as you guys did the the folk stuff, the acoustic instruments with the electric. We'd seen some of that from earlier eras, you know, the Flying Burrito Brothers or maybe Jason mm-hmm. and the Scorchers. But nothing in the late 80s, early 90s as you guys were doing. So what made you think, let's do this?
5: Well, I I wouldn't – and we never, ever sat down and discussed goals or directions of this and that. So I would have to look at the record collection I had back then and what we were soaking in. Without a doubt, the the punk or the edgier stuff, the Husker Du, definitely the Ramones, Elvis Costello, like the Jam and Gang of Four, and uh, this was a great style of music as well. But we weren't silly enough not to play these great instruments like. The harmonica and fiddles, because and the acoustics, because they sound so great. But um, being the angry teenagers, I guess we were. The distortion pedal had to go along too um, <laughs> on on the road trip So <laughs> we just uh, turned it. I remember asking Jay years back in the basement, one of our parents, listening to the Clash, the Clash record, and uh, I asked him, "How do you get? How do they get those guitars to sound like that?" And he he said, "They just turn it up real loud." <laughs> <laughs>
3: Tell us about where the band was before the recording of No Depression that winter in Boston, 1990.
5: Well, as Greg had mentioned, the Primitives were kicking around the Belleville in St. Louis, Missouri area for um, a year or two at the latter years of me and Jay and Jeff's high school years. But then when we would meet up as a three piece, that's definitely the turning point for original songs, was more of a focus, I'm thinking 1987. The first batch of songs we wrote and tried to record them real quick in Belleville. Did another demo that ended up on this bonus CD of this release out in Fayetteville at a trailer and tried some other stuff. Br- brought Jay's brother Dade along with a mandolin and he sang on uh, one of our first editions of No Depression in mm-hmm. Heaven. I remember going to the Great Grizzly Bear in St. Louis, Missouri. Right in during this time frame, we were a three-piece. I remember that. And uh, we stopped in to, to see Pop the Balloon with a friend of ours, Steve Scariano from St. Louis, and Adam Schmidt play. And Jeff and Jay sang a version of Sin City. I was not on stage. I don't even know if I played the drums that night. Maybe it was just Jeff and we were there, and they decided to open or, or play a few fill-in songs. But that rendition of Sin City... Uh, while it wasn't an extremely large crowd, got everybody's attention, including mine. The way these two voices melded in a Graham Parsons song—that was a turning point for me personally, because I—I had never really stepped out front to hear them sing. So from that point, from that show on, I guess we booked a, a session up in Champaign with Adam, but it ended up being Matt Allison behind uh, the board, and. um that's when our focus, it just seemed like an urgency to really get it right, to whatever we got in us, get it out and get it right. So we did. Then we, mailed the, we made self-release cassette tapes from that session of Not Forever, Just For Now. Went out on the road, up and down the Mississippi River, I guess a little bit, to try to sell them and um, we sent them to labels and uh, what ended up being Rockville Records called and um, decided to f- fund a recording session in Fort Apache Studio.
3: In, yeah, so you wind up going to Boston to record. Yeah. That had to be a whole other world.
5: Yeah, I didn't like that uh, at first. Uh, I, uh, that's a big city. and uh, But I think that came—I remember being in the kitchen of the place we lived, me, Jeff, and Jay, on 11th Street in Belleville, and Dinosaur Jr. was playing quite a bit on the, in the house. And uh, the sounds of those records, for me, I remember them saying— the producers were Sean and Paul, Sean Slade and Paul Coldery, and— uh, I think that that must have been the inception point of trying to look them up. To our luck, they were available.
4: We'll talk more with Mike Heidorn about Uncle Tupelo in just a minute here on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX. Later, Swedish singer songwriter Licky Lee says, I never learn.
2: Looks like it's time to lay this burden down Stop messing around Don't want to go to the grave without a sound Give us all a place to rest Not to ride on a factory belt Our respect, there's no more Looks like it's time to lay this burden down Stop messing around Don't want an early grave in the ground Give a soul a place to rest Not to ride on a factory bell
3: Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Jim Dirigatis. My partner is Greg Cott. And that is the Uncle Tupelo song, Outdone. But it's not the version that would end up on the band's 1990 groundbreaking release, No Depression. It's one of the many demo tracks you can hear on a new Legacy Recordings reissue of No Depression. Uncle Tupelo, of course, was Jeff Tweedy, now the frontman for Wilco, Jay Farrar, now of Sunvolt, and drummer Mike Heidorn. He joins us now to talk about why this album had such a big impact on musicians and fans and the alt-country genre. Heck, it even became the name of an Americana music magazine. Mike, I'm
4: interested in the songwriting dynamic at the time. I mean, few bands have one songwriter as good as Tweedy or Farrar, let alone two guys like that. And I know Farrar was the more dominant figure at this stage, but how did the songwriting actually work? How did you work out arrangements once the songs were presented?
5: I don't really remember any discussion as a band sitting down and talking about arrangements or anything. They had to, obviously, because of chord changes, but it was more a look to see what the person was doing. And more to that, it was more a feeling and almost feeling. Jay's vocal, for me, always took me to where the song was going to go. And Jeff was just so... His tenacity and and really getting the song right and from start to finish really anchored us, and uh, I was just sitting in the middle, um, trying to soak it all in and and play it back to them as I hear it. It was really just kind of one breath, kind of we were we were living together, and it was really just trying to be one instrument and the harmonica from Jay on, like, whiskey bottle. Really, at that time, that that was really the crux of Uncle Tupelo to me, this deep harmonica, the, the throat, the way he was voicing that really spoke to me.
2: Persuaded, paraded, inebriated in doubt Still aware of everything Life carries on without There's one, too many faces with dollar signs smiles smiles. Gotta find the shortest path to the bar for a while. A long way from happy.
5: There's definitely Jeff's songs and Jay's songs, for sure, depending on the vocal even. But when they sang together, I couldn't even believe that they both didn't write the same words because they, they kind of said at the same time with the same inflection, and it was uh, music to my ears.
0: Fear makes you weary She need something to get along She's there at the flatness And inside's dark home Will not me, you whisper This isn't where it ends your hand holds a bottle has become Your last lonely friend I've lost all hope There's hope for you If not just in the possibility What better next day If not just in possibility
3: Mike, you're universally known as a, a really personable guy, <laughs> you know, and, 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 and I don't mean this in any... Uh, amongst other things, though. Amongst well, other things, you. right? You yeah. know, but but Jay and Jeff, who the two of us have interviewed innumerable times, you know, are not mm-hmm. the most talkative of fellows, and I think that uh, as, as the band's reputation grew, people had this image of these great geniuses, right? You know, to what extent were they just regular guys having fun making noise? back then?
5: You know, I met them, them both before I was in a band with them briefly, uh, met their acquaintance, but I could tell there was something different about both of them when, when it came time for music, because we had seen plenty of bands, cover bands, all kinds of bands growing up, but very few turned my head and, and made me look a second time, so I don't know. I, I don't think they were just your normal Joes. They were friendly to me. They're loyal friends, so reputations aside through the years jay was never one to sit around and rap about his feelings me and jeff would actually joke about that i want to rap about to rap about her feelings and um <laughs> and we never did but jeff would, would be the one that would say that to me when rap about her feelings just because i could just tell he was wanting to just to say so much during practice but he didn't know what to say and jay jay is very good at i, I presume self-editing himself and and not one to quickly speak but say just the important stuff and I could learn from that in my life but I I haven't yet (laughs) well neither have we that's uh, why we're on the radio (laughs) but uh, normal Joes I'm sure yes they are Uh, we were traveling around in a van they were same as me Midwestern boys but when it came to music they had a different level
2: looks like we're all looking for life worth living that's why we drink ourselves to sleep. You know, we're all looking for life worth living. That's why we pray for our souls to keep.
3: Okay, so even though you saw that, were you surprised at the way the influence and the reverence in the music world has, uh, you know, it it came on, you know, it was well-reviewed upon its release, No Depression, and then it grew and it grew and it grew. I mean, it's it's the big pink of our generation, right, or something, right?
5: No, sir. No. Um, I'm humbled and honored to be talking to Greg and Jim right now (laughs) 20-some-odd years later about these recordings. But it just speaks to uh, the—we had to get those songs recorded right then. There was an urgency for some reason. We had to do this. We're here, and we're able, and uh, I'm really thankful someone was on the other side of the glass uh, hitting the record button because we're able to talk about it today.
4: We're talking to Mike Heidorn of Uncle Tupelo, the drummer in that band— Mike, we need to address uh, not only the content in these songs, this melding of country influences and Indian punk influences, but your producers, Sean Slade and Paul Q. Coldery. They both said to me that they were amazed at the arrangements in these songs. Like, un- you couldn't duplicate those arrangements. Tweet even said that nobody could duplicate the parts that you played on drums. Colderoy called it a rolling tumbleweed of sound, reminded me of these cartoons where Popeye would get into a fight, and there's a big cloud with arms and legs sticking out Mm -hmm. and unintelligible curse words flying out. These kind of complicated arrangements around these kind of uh, traditional-sounding songs. Did you feel that? Were you in the middle of that? And how did those arrangements come
5: about? I think that when I first saw Jay and the Plebes play, while there are three-chord songs, Louie Louie and stuff, it seems like they weren't playing those kind of songs. They, They were playing some more Kinks arrangements, the Kinks and uh, even Elvis Costello, which threw different arrangements and chords in there. Then Jeff was buying those records. So they were studied well on on just your not your three chord song and the importance of a bridge and stuff, which I didn't even know what those things were. So we never really charted out any of those songs ever. I would barely get a, a set of lyrics to kind of follow along. So the arrangements were really, for me, there were just one one continuous moment in a song with a bunch of feelings i guess i'm kind of i'm a gemini i have a lot of um attention span you know i get bored easily so maybe in the middle of the song it was time to break it down to half the beat and then at the end really just explode and get this thing out of here right but it just seemed to me like a one breath kind of thing and wherever jay's neck of his guitar took him I would try to be right behind him, and Jeff was just so in tune that he was right you know, right there ahead of him.
4: Uh, you said the lyrics weren't a big part of how you were playing, but uh, I'm wondering if you could comment on some of this stuff. You know, Screen Door, Tweety, Down Here, Where We're At, Everybody's Equally Poor.
0: Down here, where we're at, everybody is equally poor. Down here, we don't care. We don't care what happens outside the screen door.
4: I asked Tweety about that line, you know, a number of years ago and he says, Yeah, I was kind of I almost laugh at how we romanticized this whole thing. It was almost like, okay, here we are, we're we're gonna pretend like we're
3: 1920s uh, Appalachian coal miners. I I always thought they were both trying a little too (laughs) hard to be members of the Carter family. (laughs) But there was something sweet and naive about it, right? uh,
5: Exactly. I think that was the thing. was just trying to encapsulate... um, I I don't know. Maybe you take a a little thing you see with a depressed economy or your hometown and then when you write it what you see, it seems so pointed and so um, direct. But they had to sing and, and be proud of what they said. So their directness played a good part in what, what came out. They, they were direct, but the way Jay, uh, What a Life a Mess Can Be, and stuff, his play on words, and, and just Jeff's directness on stuff like that year and uh, his feelings about, boy, you know, it could be off in a uh, foreign land right now because my age. And scared.
0: Quarter after two, to my car, watching, waiting on a train. Nine to seven flat cars loaded down with two trucks and tanks. Rolling back. I'm 21, now i scared as hell. I could still, I was healthy as a horse because of all
5: When they sang, they put a lot of emotion into it, both of them, and that was when I knew the song could swell. But I never—they didn't write them down too much for me, so I would—I would go with their guttural inflections of the song.
4: Were you surprised that obviously the the band, their influence expanded, but it seemed like Uncle Tupelo broke up really before they got as big as people were anticipating they would get, and it seems like the band's reputation and legend only grew uh, as big as it was after you guys broke up. Why do you think that is?
5: Well, death is a great career move, and it was kind of a flash. I look back at these years now that I actually have dates on some of these recordings, and it was a three- to four-year span that you have all this energy, you feel like you know a lot more because you're, gosh, you're 20 years old now, and you have that confidence of adult. I remember at one point they were writing really great songs, and I could hear it in the apartment around before the release of the third record, March 16th through 20th back in 92, and they were really uh, great songs I was hearing, and I, I had to make a decision at that point. My life was getting busied up. We weren't making really any money at all, so with the kids in the picture, I had to really search inside and of me, and, and I came to them at a meeting and said, I think you guys really need a drummer that can put the blinders on and take these songs you guys have and do the world over with them, with no stuttering from me. And they were stunned, and I wasn't because I just knew that the songs needed to be heard everywhere, and I I was getting pulled in different directions, and that was sad, but because there was a beginning, a middle, and an end for, for my tenure, I mean, that's what it is. That's your... Um, legacy, if I can use that word.
3: All right, but here's the million-dollar question, Mike. Uh, I'm sure all the dedicated old country fans are wondering. If those two guys, Jeff Tweedy and Jay Farrar, called you up and said, let's play, I'm sure you'd say, sure, why not? But would that ever happen? Uh, no, I don't think so. Um, I don't, <laughs> and I don't think it would.
5: Uh, I don't think, you know, that was a moment in time that you really can't replicate. But, you know, to the same extent, Life can be very short or very long, and things happen in life. And music is music. And hearing these songs, I, I do get sad that I'll I'll never get to. You know, uh, there's a song "Blues Die Hard" by Jay, one of our first rockin' songs uh, on these early demos that we never played, but these handful of times I think. It was my mistake.
4: Well, it's a, what was the Jay Farrar uh, lyric, Not Forever, Just For Now, right? Very much yeah. about, you know, that was a moment. And uh, right. we're, we're yeah. not going to be rel- reliving it any time soon. Mike, let's uh, wrap up here by, by talking a little bit about a representative song
5: for you from the No Depression record. Sure. Well, if you have the disc two, which is the bonus CD they're releasing um, with the Not Forever, Just For Now, there's a song on there which I think is the only song on Uncle Tupelo's catalog that I contribute a lyric to called I Got Drunk we did it a few times, and now listening back, I wish we would have took the intro to one and kept it with the outro of another, but any of those versions seem to, to sum up, um, and I'm probably embarrassing Jeff and Jay for picking that song, because uh, they have much better, but just with the harmonica ripping in some, and the distortions, I think that for me would be a song to play.
2: One, two, and I'm me a shot. Keep asking yourself, why am I still hanging?
4: I Got Drunk it was one of the very earliest songs, right, that the band sort of yes. uh, decided this is worthy of sending out into the world. And it was an A-side, I guess, on a single. It was released as a single, right,
5: yeah, around the time uh, of the album? Yeah, and I think uh, the B-side was Sin City, which never really uh, they could never really record those two singing Sin City like I first heard it in The Great Grizzly Bear, but uh, they came pretty close.
2: This old town's filled with sin it'll swallow you in if you got some money to burn so take it home right away you got three 31st floor A gold-plated door Won't keep out The Lord's burning Rain Scientists say It'll all Wash away But we don't Believe Anymore Cause we've got
3: We've been talking with drummer Mike Hydorn, one of the founding members of Uncle Tupelo, about that band's landmark release, No Depression. Mike, thanks for joining us on Sound Opinions.
5: Thanks, guys. I appreciate it very much.
4: And we want you to share your sound opinions on Uncle Tupelo, No Depression, and Alt Country at 888-859-1800. You can also connect to us on Facebook and Twitter. Coming up, we've got reviews of two highly anticipated albums from The Black Keys and Licky Lee.
3: Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Jim DeRogatis. I'm here with Greg Cott, and that is the song Fever, a single from Turn Blue, the eighth album from the Black Keys. The Black Keys came together in their native Akron, Ohio, early in the 2000s. Dan Auerbach on vocals, guitars, and Patrick Carney on drums. Greg, early on they were seen as kind of a a carbon copy White Stripes, okay? They were doing blues rock stomp. Uh, They were a duo. They were indie underground garage raw productions. But the Black Keys kept releasing songs and albums throughout the decade, and they had a huge commercial breakthrough with Brothers in 2002. El Camino followed that, debuting at the top of the Billboard charts. There were Grammys and, of course, festival headlining slots. They are a very big band that came from very far underground. So needless to say, there's a lot of anticipation for album number eight. They're once again collaborating with Brian Burton, Danger Mouse. It's something new, though. It's a new sound for them. We'll give our opinions on it in a minute, but first, let's hear a track from Turn Blue. This is the epic opener, Weight of Love by the Black Keys on Sound Opinions. I used to
0: think, darling, you never did nothing But you were always up to something Always had a running I gotta think Those days are coming to get ya Now nobody wanna protect ya
4: That's Weight of Love from the Black Keys, their eighth studio album, Turn Blue. A couple things notable about this record, Jim. Uh, you mentioned the relationship with Danger Mouse that they've been forging since 2008. He is basically a third member of the band in everything but name. He's co-writing the songs. He's co-producing the songs. And I think his touch is very evident in this record. They have been veering away step by step from that sort of Ohio-centric Garage punk take on, uh, you know, basically Mississippi Hill Country blues that they started out their career with and moving more towards a keyboard oriented sound. Whereas in 2011 with El Camino, you really heard them step up in that way in a sort of arena rock kind of level. You know, they're one of the few bands of the new millennium alongside maybe Kings of Leon Arcade Fire that can fill an arena on a regular basis. But on this record, I, I think they almost do a 180 here in bringing down some of those gigantic hooks and maybe de-emphasizing the guitar in favor of the keyboards and and becoming much more introspective a lot of the lyrics in this record are based on a on a breakup of, of of orbach's marriage apparently and you can hear it i think as an experiment it's an interesting set of ideas here i like the fact that they're sort of testing their boundaries you know working with these more orchestral arrangements but i don't think they get all the way there the hooks aren't there Uh, And I don't think the songs are there. There are a few really good moments on
3: this album, but a lot of half-baked ones. I'm going to have to give it a try-it rating. Yeah, Greg, I flip-flopped on this record a couple of times while I was living with it. I came to the Black Keys late. I was unimpressed by their garage rock stomp early on. But El Camino I thought was brilliant, especially because of the stylistic experiments they were beginning to do. But here at first, I, I-, I wanted more brawny or stomp, Zeppelin-esque arena rock. And instead, I got a trip to The Temptations' Psychedelic Shack. Mm. Then when I accepted it for that, okay, I mean, I love psychedelic soul. It's not really turning blue. It's turning psychedelic soul, what they're doing here. However, there are two impediments to that. One is Auerbach's voice. He has got nothing like the effortless falsetto of Plant, Robert Plant of Zeppelin, at his best. Also, Patrick Carney, I say this as a lover of John Bonham, as a drummer. He's great when he's doing the full on stomp. He seems very restrained here, though, mm-hmm. and he doesn't quite catch that sly stone psychedelic groove that you need. It needs to be a little bit, there's a riot going on, but, it, you know, something doesn't quite gel. I, uh, unlike you, wish they had gone further. If they started with Weight of Love, which is a really nice piece of metal era Pink Floyd, it's pure mm. Burton, right? And then seeing how much further they could push it from there, it would have been great. But, you, you know, half-baked is the word you used. I would agree with it. I'd say this is a try-it record.
4: That is Love Me Like I'm Not Made of Stone, a new single from Licky Lee and her third studio album, I Never Learn. She started out as a uh, one-woman band, a teenager, uh, out of Sweden, playing guitar, percussion, and singing all at once. Created a bit of a stir, got signed to a record deal, and the first album came out in 2008 called Youth Novels, sort of mixing this pixie-ish persona You know, pop mixed with some quirkiness. You can trace some of those pop melodies to a a great Swedish pop act like ABBA, which we just talked about on the show a few weeks ago, and then mixing it in with the indie rock influences of more recent vintage. One of the key collaborators in her career is uh, Bjorn Yitling of Peter, Bjorn, and John, a band that had some success out of Sweden as well. He's uh, co-produced and co-written all of her albums. In 2011, she really stepped up in terms of international recognition with an album called Wounded Rhymes. A lot of people thought that might be her breakthrough. It didn't quite get her there. Now we have I Never Learn. She says it's part of a trilogy. The, the, these first three albums all are linked together in some way. We're going to talk about that in a minute, but let's play a track from I Never Learned First. It's called No Rest for the Wicked from Licky Lee on Sound Opinions.
3: No Rest for the Wicked by Licky Lee from album number three, I Never Learn. Greg, I think this record falls short of being a masterpiece only by virtue of the fact that Licky Lee has a a kind of limited voice. But it is a wonderful and unique one. Her take on that age-old pop theme of heartbreak is a unique one because she turns the spotlight on herself and continually ponders where she fails as a person. And it makes her all the more lovable, and and it, it kind of builds this empathy with her. While she's doing a really unique mix of very underground minimalist sound, she considers herself a singer and a songwriter. And most of these songs at their core are an acoustic guitar or a reverbed grand piano. But then there are these moments of almost Phil Spector-like wall of sound orchestral swell, and they're really great. So a lot of critics are debating, you know, what is she? Is she, you know, a pop diva in the making? She is working here with, in addition to Bjorn, Greg Kirsten, who's brought us Pink and Kelly Clarkson and Katy Perry and Foster the People? Or is she this underground mix of Grimes, Lord and Solange? I mean... I- I don't care which camp, right? All I know is that Torch songs rarely have been done as well as they are done here. And I loved her other two records. I love this one. It does make a great trilogy, so it's a buy it from me.
4: Jim, I wish I could agree with you because I like this artist a lot. I really liked Wounded Rhymes, uh, Licky Lee's second album in 2011. I think the main reason that I like that so much is that we got some attitude and variety and punch Alongside the more somber stuff, I mean, she was brokenhearted then too, but I thought the arrangements were much more varied and uh, the hooks were amazing on that record. It was a great production job by Itling. On this record, I, I, it's more monochrome. I like the fact that she stripped things down. It's kind of cool with that reverb on the on the guitar and the voice, but it draws unnecessary attention to those lyrics well maybe she felt that was necessary but i think some of these lyrics are frankly embarrassing i i just don't think she's that good of a songwriter and i i know from the previous records that she had some issues here with with language it's almost like okay it's a second language and maybe it doesn't translate that well now wait a minute you there know, professor
3: cot yeah even though it hurts even though it scars love me when it storms love me when i fall i, I think that uh, that's 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 poetic I, you, why what you know you you would take that from taylor swift but you don't no, like it from licky lee i'm, I'm not going to take it from taylor swift either and i think i, I, I think, think it's, you're wrong I think about it's, the monotone heart of steel is a very upbeat song not really
4: relevant to this record yes but i mean in, in the context of what she did previously i think it still very much sits in that very downcast area you didn't I'm, like lord either i'm uh, questioning
3: your taste i'm the, i'm questioning
4: diva i'm questioning how much praise is given to them as lyric writers and i do pay attention to lyrics especially when the artist is putting so much attention on them these lyrics frankly aren't very good and i'm going to give it a try it
3: Alright, that's a buy it from me and a try it from grumpy old Greg What do we have on the show next week? Next week, Jim, we're going to celebrate Memorial Day with songs from the front lines As always, we have some thank yous to say, Greg, on the way out Sound Opinions is produced by senior producers Jason Saldana and Robin Lynn. Our assistant producer is Anthony Martinez And our intern is Jake Smith
4: Opinions, everyone's a critic. So now it's time to hear what you have to say. New messages.
6: Hey, this is Matt from Humboldt Park in Chicago. I just wanted to call in to say I really enjoyed the Pelican interview and the breakdown of all the satellite genres of punk and hardcore and metal. Um, all that reminded me of one of the greatest bands that's still playing, and that would be Propagandi. I'm 30 years old, and these guys have been playing for pretty much my entire life, and it seems like their music just keeps getting better and
4: better. They've always been such considerate songwriters, even back in the early days. Since then, they've mastered and fine-tuned just about every variation of progressive explosive music that's out there. I mean, the range of styles they have between albums and even songs is just astonishing. I think a song like Speculative Fiction is a great example of the band's democratic and
6: expert musicianship. Thanks. A
2: new across the
6: Hi, guys. My name is Anthony Sikora. I am calling from Chicago. I just heard your show on Chess Records. And I wanted to say that in the uh, early 90s, right when Nirvana was playing music, uh, we had run of Chess Studios. It was in between owners, and I was in a band uh, right before it turned into a museum. And for about three months, we literally had run of the place, and uh, we recorded a whole bunch of songs there. Nothing at all to do with the blues. It was uh, completely different. But uh, it was just so great hearing your show. And, you know, we were so young, we had no idea where we were at the time. And uh, later, uh, we realized what a uh, unique and wonderful place we recorded in. So thanks for, for your show. It really uh, just uh, really made me think about how special the experience I had there was. Take care. Love the show. Bye-bye.
1: The first time- If you know I was walking, I was walking down through the woods. Yeah, the first time, the first time I met you. Blue. Don't you know I was walking? I was walking down
6: through the woods. Hey guys, this is Scott Gilman from Austin, Texas. Been listening to your show for about three years as a podcast during my work commute. My biggest beef with you guys was how somehow in the episode on am talking about the music industry, you did not mention Working for MCA by Leonard Skinner. That's a travesty that I'm still coming to terms with. But I'm calling because I love the episode on Chess Records and Chicago Blues. When I was in college, I had my own blues show on 87.9 WBAR, Barnard College Radio. The Columbia radio station was jazz and talk only, so I had to take the blues across Broadway to Barnard to play that stuff. I played a lot of the artists you mentioned but especially Helen Wolfe, Muddy Waters, Eddie James, Otis Rush, and certainly Buddy Guy and Bo Diddley. But one name I didn't hear you mention, who I think is just as influential in the transition of blues into rock and roll, is John Lee Hooker. Like Muddy Waters, he recorded a lot of early stuff with Chess, when it was just him, his guitar, and basically him tapping his foot. Even though Boogie Chillin' was not recorded on Chess, which would explain why you didn't mention it on the show, I think that song belongs right up there with the track "Bo oh Diddley," "Smokestack Lightning," and "I'm a Man" on the Mount Rushmore of blues rock songs. Thanks for the awesome show and keep up the great work.
0: Will my mouth allow me? Just this stay out all night long. Oh Lord. Will my mouth allow me? No more messages. I didn't care I
3: To share your opinions on Sound Opinions, call 888 859 1800. We'll be back next week on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and distributed by PRX.